They're in the gate, and they're off in the Breeders' Cup Classic in Muggatee, and he's put right to the whip from the gate. Up to take the lead, he's bearing out now. As they this is the call the for the first annual Breeders' Cup Classic, which was run in 1984 at Hollywood Park in Los Angeles. The race included a lineup of horses, later described by jockey Pat Day as a murderer's row, and it produced a thrilling finish that took 10 minutes to sort out after the end of the race. But for our purposes, we're not as interested in the notable horses running as we are interested in the notable people in attendance. Included among 64,000 visitors to the track was one of the most important people in modern gambling history, Dr. Edward Thorpe. By then, Thorpe's gambling resume included the following contributions. He published the first blackjack card counting system in the early 60s. Around the same time, he also advocated for the use of the Kelly criteria to size wagers, an idea that has gained widespread acceptance since then. In the late 60s, Thorpe published work on beating the stock market and later put those ideas to work at his own hedge fund, where he made hundreds of millions of dollars. Oh, and now this is just running up the score, but somewhere in there, he found time to build perhaps the world's first wearable computer, which he used to beat the game of roulette. So if you knew that Ed Thorpe was at the track, betting thousands of dollars per race, you might be curious as to what he was up to. He's not the kind of guy to toss around money based on the names of the horses. Well, it turns out that he had an edge. It just wasn't an edge that he had discovered. Instead, he had a ringer. He was there with two other PhDs, and one of the other PhDs was watching the race tote board, punching numbers into a calculator, figuring out which horses to bet, and also estimating how much to bet. The Breeders' Cup Classic was the seventh race of the day, and by that time, the professors had been winning steadily all day. In the big race, they made two bets. They bet Sluo Gold to place and Gate Dancer to show. Let's listen to the end of the race. The race ended wild again, followed by Gate Dancer with Slew of Gold in third. It wasn't terrible for the professors, and it also wasn't great. But it looked like Gate Dancer might have cut off Slew of Gold. The stewards reviewed the footage for some time and then swapped Slew of Gold and Gate Dancer. It was a perfect outcome, and the professors cashed their tickets. Risk of Ruin is a podcast about gambling and life in their intersection. I'm John Reeder. This is episode 14, The Idea Man. Ed Thorpe's ringer at the track the man with the calculator, was Dr. William Zimba, sometimes known as Dr. Z. Bill specializes in the field of operations research, which is a nondescript way to say that he studies optimization. By 1984, he was an accomplished academic, but it would have been impossible to predict his career based on the way it started. 
Bill was a late bloomer. I just barely got accepted into the University of Massachusetts. I was one of the lower ones. Then I went into engineering, and the first thing that the dean said was, look to your left, look to your right, and out of the three of you, one will survive. So uh, they sort of scare you from the start. And then I got four Ds the first term, including a 69.2 D in calculus. But then I improved, and each term I got a higher grade thing, and I made the Tau Beta Pi Honor Society in Engineering at, at the end. Over the years, Bill has co-authored some 40 books covering an array of topics ranging from horse racing to lotteries to the stock market to energy. As Bill says, his greatest strength and greatest weakness is that he is interested in everything. As a student, these unconstrained interests made it difficult to choose a field. When I applied to grad school, I applied in five different fields. Uh, metallurgy, because I had spent a summer at Penn State uh, doing metallurgy research as a junior. Uh, there was the chemical engineering. There was the business school, because I was fascinated with Berkeley. Uh, there was patent attorney, because I was interested in that kind of stuff and one other field that I, f I forgot. So I was fortunate to get accepted in Berkeley, and a one of the professors at UMass who I had economic theory with, uh, Sidney Schlofer, uh, had pushed the case of Berkeley, and so I went there in the MBA program. It, w it, w it was good, and then I took their, their courses, and but I always wanted to do a PhD, and so what I did is I took courses in the operations research department, and they were basically number one and number two were Berkeley and Stanford. So what was nice is that you had both places, and they were both fantastic. So I took uh, economics, the PhD courses, statistics, master's courses, the operations research courses, but I was in the business school. and And then... I, I took up a field called stochastic programming, which was the quantitative analysis with uncertainty of, of doing various things. It doesn't seem possible now, but Bill went to grad school at one of the best schools in the world, a school with incredible teachers and students, and he paid just $100 per quarter for tuition. It was a whole different world. We had students from... Ecole Polytechnique in, in France, who were so much better than everyone else, etc. So it was tough. But I did have one, one thing going for me. I had a good attitude. Uh, I, I have to tell you, attitude is very important. And, and what, what I did is I, I didn't care so much about the grades. All I cared about is the learning. Bill has spent most of his academic career at University of British Columbia, along with various sabbaticals and visiting jobs at other universities. His field of study means that he works on problems that are dominated by randomness and uncertainty. See, when you tell people stochastic programming, they get kind of complicated and they don't quite understand what it is. They think it's like stochastic processes, which is how the prices change, but it's, it's actually different. Uh, it's the optimization of uncertainty. It's a complicated field. It's wonderful for thinking, 
and it's been very valuable for me in terms of thinking. Most of the people in the field are theoretical and and don't do practical stuff, but there is good research in energy, forestry, uh, etc. Some in in finance. Me, I've been quite a bit in finance. Uh, for me, I do asset liability models, portfolio things, etc. Bill's original racing system, the one that Ed Thorpe was betting in 1984, is based on a very simple idea. Take a very efficient market, like the bets for which horses will win a race, and then use that information to find inefficiencies in related wagers, like the bets for place and show. When I say that the place and show system is based on a simple idea, I mean that as a compliment, since the very best strategies will avoid unneeded complexity. But simple and obvious are not synonyms. The system had to be discovered. I grew up near Saratoga Racetrack in in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. And I used to go to the races in Saratoga, which was a 90-minute drive. So I was always interested in racing. When I got to UBC in 1968, I had grants. So I used some of the grant money to start working on racing. And I was doing factor models, which is sort of like what we do in the stock market. And then I had a leave at Berkeley in 76. And I met with a guy called David Pyle, who was in the finance department. And he knew that Mark Rubenstein, who's a well-known options guy, you know, the inventor with Hanley Lynn of portfolio insurance. I was actually friendly with, with both of them. And David pointed out that Rubenstein was interested in racing, and I was, and he got us together. So we started talking, and Rubenstein pushed the case for viewing this, the racing as a stock market. And so I started thinking about doing it that way. So I, I did that, and I, I started working on it. I came back to UBC after the, uh, the sabbatical period in, in Berkeley. And then I had a very good student, Donald Hosh, who was in my classes. And Don worked with me, and he was a very good computer person, very serious. And we started working on this stuff. And then we, we pretty well discovered the place and show system. And Rubenstein came up, but that was a time of, of portfolio insurance. And he was less interested in it then. Uh, so we, we put him third on the paper. And then the 81 paper in management science had the, the basic gem of, of a system. And the, the basic system was you use the prices for a simple market in a complicated market and then figure out when you have an advantage and then when you have the advantage, figure out how much to bet. We figured out a way to estimate the advantage with just looking at four numbers on the board for place and show, root and bets. And then we use the so-called Kelly criteria to figure out how much to bet. So then we wrote the Beat the Racetrack book, 1984, and Thorpe wrote the foreword for it. And we had convinced Thorpe that it was a winning system 
In fact, he, he praised it. There's a parallel that exists between Bill's place and show system and Ed Thorpe's original card counting system. When Thorpe invented his card counting system in the 60s, he was a poor professor. So he had a wealthy professional gambler put up the money to test the system. Then some 25 years later, when it was time to test the horse racing system, it was Thorpe who was the wealthy professional on hand to verify the work of a professor. Thorpe comes in with lots of money stuffed in all his pockets everywhere you look. Uh, I was a prof- uh, basically a theoretical professor, uh, so I had a little money, but not not a lot. And it was, I think for me, uh, it was important to demonstrate to Thorpe that he was right, that the system did work. And, and we did win that day. Ed Thorpe and Bill Zimba have also collaborated outside of horse racing. They co-edited a book on Kelly betting, which is the bankroll optimization method widely used in professional gambling. Thorpe was an early and consistent proponent of Kelly betting, while Bill's contributions have included figuring out the adjustments needed to go from a single bet to a portfolio of bets. Even though Bill has spent a lifetime surrounded by brilliant people, he says that Ed Thorpe is in a separate category. When you talk to Thorpe, you can explain a complicated thing and, and that would require a normal per person two, two days to figure out. And in five minutes, he's figured it all out. He's, he's, he's really brilliant. You know, he's, he's up there with uh, the, the greats. You know, I, I mean, I'm friendly with Markowitz and Sharp and other Nobel Prize winners and Thaler, and I've worked with some of them. None of them are, are as smart as Thorpe. The place and show system was just the first iteration of Bill's work on horse racing. Over the years, he's written several other books, and he's also consulted with a number of the top professional syndicates. The top teams generate their edge using a data advantage, and they also negotiate favorable terms to overcome the large track take. The the regular take is 13 to 30%. And with a rebate, you're talking about 10 or 11 or 12. So there's three types of, of betters. There's amateurs, of which is the, the vast majority. There's advanced amateurs who use computer programs and study a lot and know a lot about the racing, etc. And those are the people who are on TV, and you see them all the time on TV and different things. And then there's the professional. Now, the professional can do it with handicapping or better do it the way Benter and the others do it with mathematical models that bypass the handicapping. Now, if you want to make a team to do that, it requires usually uh, two to four years and about a million dollars of research to do the models and get everything together. The biggest team in the world is in Sydney, Australia. And when I visited them 10 years ago, they had 90 people working, and they were betting $1.2 billion per year everywhere around the world. They now have 300 people working. So the game for, for them, especially the ones that are trading in the U.S. markets, is not to win money betting but to break even and win the rebate. Rebates are a fundamental part of advantage gambling. The slice of the house edge 
that gets redistributed to players in the form of marketing offers, sign-up bonuses, or loss rebates can be targeted by advantage players. In fact, lots of the biggest scores have come from exploiting rebates. In horse racing, that's especially the case. I make a bet on a horse. I call it into a rebater. The rebater takes that money and sends it to an aggregator. The aggregator then sends it to the track. The track gets a lot more money from this. So therefore, instead of charging 15% commission, they charge like five. So there's 5% in there to give to the better me and 5% to give to the rebater there. And that's the 15%. That means that the average better and the advanced amateur is paying more than 15% because we are paying 5%. And it plans to average to 15 So they're, they're paying like 17%. Bill's original book titled Dr. Z's Beat the Racetrack put him on the map for a number of gamblers working on racing. One of those gamblers, the legendary Bill Benter, sought out Dr. Z to talk about their different approaches to the sport. Benter was working on a factor model that used variables like jockey quality, workout results, and recent races to predict which horses would win. Benter's approach might be called a bottom-up approach, while Dr. Z's market-based approach might be called top-down. And not only did Benter's approach differ, but their backgrounds also provide a stark contrast. Whereas Dr. Z was trained formally, Benter was a former card counter who reportedly taught himself advanced stats. They talked about their strategies, and then Benter sent Dr. Z a letter, which basically said, you're an academic, and I'm a businessman, so it doesn't make sense for us to work together. This letter is reprinted in one of Zimba's books, and I can't tell whether Benter means that he doesn't want to share any more information because he doesn't want the information to get out, or if he means he simply doesn't want to pay consulting fees. In any event, Dr. Z acknowledges that in addition to stunning financial success, Benter also made contributions to the study of horse racing. Uh, he has a, cu a couple contributions. One is in the uh, our place and show system, we use the fact that there is a favorite long shot bias, that the favorites are under bet and the long shots are over bet. Now, that's for win. The, the advantage for second and third reverses the bias. The favorites are flipped on this. So in our system, you do not have to, uh, because it's for place and show, you do not have to adjust because the two biases essentially cancel. However, they don't cancel for other exotic bets. And what Thorpe, uh, I'm sorry, Benter discovered was that the so-called Harville formulas, which were used to calculate the probabilities, are actually biased and, and are not accurate. Because if a horse does not win a race, the probability they come second or third is lower than the formulas. So you have to adjust the, the formulas in a couple ways. And we have lots of the formulas in our books. Uh, Victor Lowe has methods, etc., and one of them is discounted Harville, where you adjust the probabilities as well. That's a, a good way of doing it. And, and uh, Bencher uh, did discover that. Dr. Z has come into contact with a number of people who made millions 
in racing. Sometimes Bill actually worked for these people, and sometimes they were involved in a more academic sense. For example, Bill co-edited a book titled The Handbook of Lottery and Sports Markets, which includes a paper co-authored by the Australian actuary turned card counter turned horse better, Alan Woods. Some listeners will know that Alan Woods and Bill Benter were partners before they had a falling out. To give you a sense of the success Alan Woods achieved in racing, when he passed away in 2008, his estate was rumored to be worth a billion dollars. One syndicate that actually hired Dr. Z to consult was run by Paul Macon. They worked together briefly, but then had a disagreement over compensation. It, it, it was he was a funny guy because on the Gold Coast he was renting a he was re- renting very very expensive houses and the student and I had gone to Australia twice and we had figured out most of the stuff for him we were doing the optimization An, another person was doing the computer programming and the factor models so we were not doing all of it but but parts of it and he. Uh, he had a false uh, uh, accusation to kick us out. He he did pay us the fee that was agreed more or less, but grudgingly. Uh, but he, he more or less uh, cheated us. But you know that's the way it was. Uh, but we had a you know a reasonably uh, a good time before. The same skills that would allow you to find edges are also the skills that would be useful in designing games. Bill has worked for several governments to design lotteries, sports pools, and bingo games. I had been a consultant for the BC Lottery Commission for years. And basically, the work with them was to patch up a mistake they made when they put a lottery together. So they would put lotteries together, but... They would not hire a professional person to analyze them. So they often would have a mistake, and and they had to fix it. So I would be called in to to fix it. An age-old issue in gambling is this question of how much skill and how much luck should go into a game. Ironically, they can both appeal to our sense of fairness. A luck-based game keeps everyone on the same level where no player can have an advantage while a skill-based game appeals to the idea that outcomes should reflect merit. So depending on the goals of the game administrators, you might end up with games that incorporate more or less skill. But an interesting situation is presented when game administrators think they're dealing a luck-based game, and it turns out to have a skill element. Gambling often involves complex probabilities, and the people that run these games sometimes don't know what they don't know. So the federal government had a lawsuit. I went to Montreal to be the expert witness for the government, and I was supposed to show that the game of Quebec had skill. So I, along with a friend, <clears throat> we built a model that, that bought up to 4,000 tickets per week, and it would take all those combinations and it made $70,000 in 10 plays. That we didn't bet the actual money, but we did the simulations on the computer. So that was very good. And I felt that I had proved 
that the game had skill. Bill also created a bingo lottery game, which offers an illustration of the fact that attitudes about risk vary wildly. The house edge is like 60%, so the government can make a lot on the game. The people that play the game don't mind getting the worst of it, because if they do win, the payoff will be life-changing. But then Bill also says that these games need an additional party. The game requires a deep-pocketed insurer that will take on massive exposure to variants in exchange for a healthy edge. BC asked for a bingo game where the first prize is $100 million, and the second prize is $10 million, and the last prize is $10. So the question is, how do you devise such a game? Well, we worked on it. In the mathematics, statistics of it, probability theory is very complicated. And with the aid a little bit with one of my colleagues, who was a very good probability person, uh, we figured it out. And there are all sorts of pictures of things. So you could have a, a, a seven on, on the bingo card, or you could have a seven with garbage around. Garbage means there's numbers picked around, or you could have a summit that looks perfect. You could have a Swiss flag, which is like a plus. So, so we did it, and I figured it out, and we had the game. And so you do the game, and it, it will have like a 60 or so percent advantage for the, uh, the house, the, uh, the one running the But they have one problem. If somebody wins the $100 million prize, what the hell are they going to do? So what you do is you sell the $100 million prize liability and the $10 million to Lloyds of London or Warren Buffett. But you give them a good deal. You, you get them to get it such that they have an advantage because you know Buffett will only does things when he has a great advantage. He's very clever. Bill also consulted for the Singapore Pools, which has a lottery-based sports betting game similar to the ones found in Canada. But the work culture in Singapore provided an unexpected challenge. I did go on and consult for the Singapore Pools, who were doing regular lotto games and sports lottos. And the, the only complication for me was in Singapore, they treated you like a king. I mean, it was beautiful. Uh, everything was, was wonderful. But the thing is, they like to work eight hours a day. And there wasn't really eight hours worth of uh, material to talk about. So you had to recycle some of the ideas three or four times during the day so that you could uh, get it all done and they'd be happy with their eight hours. But uh, that, that was fine. And Singapore Pools was a very successful uh, uh, operation. While Bill was working on horse racing and lotteries, he was also working on the stock market. So in 1988, when Bill got an offer to become the head of research for trading firm Susquehanna International, it could have seemed like a match made in heaven. Susquehanna was founded by Jeff Yaz, who was a professional gambler before he was a trader. As an undergrad in the 70s, Yaz wrote a paper titled Econometric Analysis of Horse Racing. Then, after college, he became a professional horse better. And actually, in researching this episode, I found an old article where Yaz's group had been banned at a track in Illinois for winning too much. Eventually, Yaz moved on to the options markets. So the trading firm with horse racing in its DNA, hiring the professor who had done original work on the ponies and the markets, would seem like a no-brainer. 
Although the fit may have been ideal, Bill decided that he preferred to stick with the flexibility of academic life. Instead of joining Susquehanna, he took a sabbatical and went to Japan, where he did a mix of teaching and research. Bill says that's where he started to seriously work on becoming a practitioner of his various ideas. The timing couldn't have been better. Bill had been researching market crashes, along with a model to predict crashes based on earnings yield and interest rates, and Japan was in an all-time bubble. We came up with a model, I guess it was my idea, based on the 87 U.S. stock market crash. This is 88. And it was high price-earnings ratio and high interest rates. Well, the question was, how do I test this model? So I asked them to give me an out-of-sample set of data for Japan. This is 88, so I asked for 48 to 88. Now, the market, because of the war, the market was closed from 45 to 48. Started up again in 48. So 48 to 88 is 40 years. What I discovered was that the model went in the danger zone 12 times in those 40 years. And every time it fell, there were, the idea of a fall was at least 10% from the place where you start. Bill tried to tell the people he was working with in Japan that his model indicated a crash, but his warning fell on deaf ears. They didn't believe that a foreign professor could understand their markets. That was the, the, the greatest call that I ever made in my life. Five years later, Yamisha Securities, who didn't listen that day, went bankrupt. <laughs> they went from six biggest brokerage firm to bankrupt <laughs> because they didn't do anything. You know, and then there was the big crash. The, in, in 1990, uh, the market fell, I think it was 56%. Uh, and so the model was perfect. You you get the signal, and it was in April where you got the signal, but it doesn't fall till January. So it's it's usually with a lag. And what we, what we discovered was the same model is good all over the world in different places. Now, in the book, Stock Market Crashes, we discuss a lot about that model. We showed that it predicted the U.S. crash in 2007-8. Iceland, and China. And then I showed that paper that we did to Harry Markowitz. And he said, Bill, this is very interesting. Why don't you do a study of 60 years and compare this with Schiller, who's on TV all the time, spouting off about high PEs. So we did it. And we wrote a paper comparing Schiller's high PE with our high PE plus high interest rates, and we show that his adds value, ours adds more value, and the Graham and Dodd idea of using 10 years earnings, which Schiller takes a lot of credit for or talks about, actually adds value to our BSEYD model. A number of the people Bill has worked for were either full-time gamblers or they were gamblers who moved on to the securities markets. One such investor was Harry McPike. Harry reportedly learned independently to count cards without knowing any of the published systems. When Bill met him, Harry had an investment fund based in the Bahamas. Uh, the phone rang and 
And the people on the line said, we're in Las Vegas and we would like to come up to see you. Would you be interested in being a consultant? Uh, we, we come from uh, NASA. And, uh, I, and it says, we have our own airplane. And usually when, when someone calls me up and have their own airplane, it, it's kind of uh, you know, interesting to meet them. Now, when I went first to Harry, he had made $600 million, roughly, and was continuing to go on and had run a fund with different people and was interested in Kelly Optimization, which I taught them, uh, the stock market, which he was just learning, et cetera. So I used to help him with that. And he gave me money to manage, which I did. And so I did this for five years, 95 to 2000. And I basically helped him find people to hire and evaluate people because he a very smart guy, but didn't know academic stuff. And then I made the crucial error. I said, Harry, you and, and your wife pick up people at two o'clock in the morning. You give the coffee to the employees. Why don't you get a business manager to take care of the office? And and you don't have to do all this stuff. I mean, after all, you're, you're worth uh, more than half a billion dollars. And he took up the idea. He asked me to evaluate all the employees in in Nassau and in in uh, Vienna. But anyway, he hired a guy who not only wanted to deal with the coffee but manage the money. And this guy figured out a way to kick me out. <laughs> uh, so he figured out a way to kick me out by uh, uh, claiming that my trading wasn't good and so forth. Uh, etc. So, but it was a very enjoyable five years. In recent years, Bill has managed his own fund using a mix of the strategies that he's researched and published. One of the strategies is based on exploiting calendar anomalies. For instance, let's say that around January 1, small cap stocks will tend to outperform large caps. The way that Bill would play this would be to take a long position in an index where companies are weighted equally and a short position in a market cap weighted index. I, I played the turn of the year effect, which is small caps beating large caps around the month of January. So I did it for um, basically 14 years with the value line. The value line was, was sort of getting too low volume. And Goldman Sachs hired me to consult to teach them how to, how to do it. So I taught it to them, and then I basically retired for a few years because I, I'm sorry, it was Morgan Stanley. So, so then I kind of retired for a few years, and then Blair Hull asked me to do anomalies, and I really restudied it, and I got interested again, and I did it for six more years playing with real money. And then in 2015-16, it, it worked. There was all all winners. I had 20 winners in 20 plays. Uh, it was terrific uh, results. Uh, a very, very good anomaly. Now, that's highly related to small caps with Democrats, which is what we've had this year with, with Biden. So then 2015-16, it actually failed. And the reason for it was late in December, they had the threat of higher interest rates, but not 
following through. And that messed it all up. So I didn't do it for a couple of years. And then I did it this past year uh, because I knew that when Trump was leaving and Biden was coming in, you'd have a Democrat, which greatly favors the small caps. And in the small caps, they started moving in October and had a run into March. So I played it in the futures market again. So that was a good one. I mean, I do, I do like winning. You know, I, I had a couple of years. I had one year in my fund where I made 100%. So I, I like that. That was pretty good. <laughs> that, that was pretty good. So Even though Bill is using quantitative strategies, it's not a set it and forget it situation. He still has to monitor to ensure things are going as planned. I'm doing my own trading, et cetera. And most of the time it goes well. For the first six years, I made 40% after fees. Uh, I had a tougher time during COVID, and that was harder. But this year, I'm doing fine. It's, it's cooking like like nicely. What was interesting with the other group, when there was trouble once a couple of years ago, I lost a little bit, and they lost 87% because they had 25 people doing the same thing that they didn't 100% understand because they were using a computer program. <laughs> So the way the, the world of investing works is they are nervous to give money to a professor, uh, except if you're at Harvard or MIT and are close to Boston or New York, where they have a lot of funds, then it's a little bit easier uh, and so forth. And I wanted to essentially run my own operation. And it was, it was pretty successful. You, you make quite a bit of, quite a bit of fees. Uh, and, and it's your own thing. And then you have your own trading of your own money. Bill's career offers an opportunity to talk about the inherent value of publishing strategies and letting the world see the work that's been done. People like Bill, who disseminate information about how to beat games or markets, aren't always greeted with well wishes. Actually, sometimes they're outright dismissed. And often that dismissal takes two contradictory forms. One side claims that if the strategy was any good, the author surely wouldn't want it to get out, so it must not be worth very much. Meanwhile, the author is also met with disapproval from practitioners already using the strategy who are now upset that it's been publicized. Bill's case illustrates why it's difficult to take these critics seriously. When Bill wrote about racing, did the syndicates dismiss his writings and say that since Bill is a professor and not a professional gambler, his racing system must not be very good? Or, when Bill wrote about the stock market anomalies, did the experienced traders dismiss him? Of course not. Bill got calls from people who wanted to pick his brain. They hired him to consult. They collaborated with him on research. They even invested in his funds. And the list of names on Bill's list, people like Ed Thorpe, Bill Benter, Alan Woods, Jeff Yaz, Blair Hull, Harry McPike, and Paul Macon, is like the Gambler Investor Hall of Fame. I actually write about strategies that are valuable, and I do not worry about whether that wrecks them or not. There is a feeling in the academic world that if you publish a good strategy, it will get wrecked. There's a little bit of literature that factor model stuff in the stock market when published is not quite as good. But I've always just published the stuff 
talked about it and written it in the books. So that may be part of the reason why I get involved with uh, so many interesting people. If there's a line that separates academic study from real-world practice, Bill has kept a foot on either side of that line for the last 40 years. Uh, I know a lot about professional racetrack betting, and there are very successful people in that. And even though my books and my ideas are used, and I've consulted for several of the teams, uh, I haven't been able to like make millions and millions of dollars. I'd make some, but but so forth, because it's it's hard. You have to focus, and there's a lot to do with it. It's it's very important to to do the research and figure it out and master the what what, what the strategy is. And then the thing is to use it to some extent. Um, I'm probably better in the research end and and putting it together and and doing it than I than I am an actual executor. The the executors who would spend all their time on something have an advantage because they focus on on just uh, one thing. Even if Bill didn't become a billionaire, like some of the people he's worked with, he's still engaged in the classic rich guy activity of owning racehorses. So uh, I have um, one running in Florida and Gulfstream. We have a couple that are ready to run, and we do breeding a little bit as well. You you learn a lot about what it's like in terms of, of doing the thing. Now, what's, what horse racing is now is at the top level, it's million-dollar horses. So it's it's largely a a sport for uh, extremely rich people. At the top level, the breeding is is pretty expensive because it gets to be uh, forty to a hundred to two hundred thousand per breed. So I'm I'm not doing that, but we're doing uh, a, a medium amount. The title of this episode is the Idea Man which came from something Bill wrote in one of his books. He said that in his research collaborations, he often serves the role of the idea person. He has a free-roaming mind that is on constant lookout for interesting questions that he can answer with his unique skill set. And while Bill has worked on sports analytics and lotteries and the markets, he doesn't stop at the low-hanging topics that get a lot of attention from analysts. For instance, when he writes about sports, he even writes about obscure sports, like Hialai. And sometimes he works in domains that seem completely unrelated. So in in 70, we UBC had the summer off. So we, we bought a, a camper and traveled in, in Europe and went through half of, uh, we went to Romania and Bulgaria and... Italy and Greece and everything. And then we did half of, of Turkey, the left half. And we, we met a guy who uh, was interested in, in rugs, and we became friendly. And I, at the time, I also saw a book uh, that was on Persian uh, carpets. The, the, there's there's the, the city carpets and the country carpets. This was on the country carpet, tribal. And I said, well, I can do a book like that. Why don't I do a book like that? 
So Sandra and I started working on this book, and, and our other pal worked with us. And then we took a second trip in 1973, where we drove from uh, Germany to Afghanistan. And then we also went around the world through Hong Kong, taking pictures. And anyway, we, we, we did this book. And it, with our colleague in 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 uh, in things, and I got people from San Francisco and Textile Museum in Washington to to help us, and we wrote one of the first books on Turkish flatweaves, 1979, which is essentially my my second book with uh, Sandra helping and the my friend in 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 Turkey. The guests on this podcast often have a common thread running through their lives which is that they have found their path by taking a road less traveled. Bill's outlook is slightly different. He likes the idea ascribed to Yogi Berra, which is that if you come to a fork in the road, take it. I work for about eight people who are billionaires. And what's the characteristic of these billionaires and other great people? They usually focus on basically one thing. What I have done is... I do books. I've, I'm now up to 40 different books on different things, which I enjoy doing. Uh, I do consulting. I, I trade the stock market. I play the horses. I like to write papers. I get a lot of pleasure out of writing good papers uh, and, and, and so forth. So I'm doing all sorts of different things. Uh, I also do oriental rugs, and, and I'm highly involved with uh, horse racing. So they all fit together in my own way. But uh, the thing is, I, I, I find for me, you never get bored because you can always go from one thing to the next thing. Risk of Ruin is written and produced by me. Special thanks to Bill Zimba. As a note about this episode, because Bill's career has covered so many topics and he's met so many interesting people, it just wasn't possible to get to all of it. But I'll provide some links in the show notes so that you can find more information on Bill's books, as well as resources for learning more about the various characters mentioned in this episode. If you're interested in getting in touch with the show, you can email us, riskofruinpod at gmail.com, or you can reach out on Twitter at halfkelly.com. 